Hello, and welcome to the Workplace Justice Podcast. This podcast helps to inform and empower you about your rights within the workplace. We cover topics and examples of various matters in employment law, including sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, racial discrimination, how the courts define a hostile work environment, whistleblowing, and everything in between. Workplace Justice is brought to you by the New York City employment and civil rights law firm, Nassar Law Group. Here are your hosts, Mahir Nassar, Casey Wolnowski, and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Hello, and thank you for listening to the Workplace Justice Podcast. I'm your host, Meyer Nassar, and today we have a special guest. Anu is a scientist, educator, lawyer, and the founder of Be More with Anu, an ed tech company that trains organizations in breaking bias to advance diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. He has logged over 10,000 hours of meditation and developed Be More with Anu's science-backed, compassion-based approach after 15 years of research on the causes and solutions to racial and gender inequality. He has brought this innovative approach to over 50,000 professionals at over 300 organizations like the American Medical Organization, PBS, and FDNY, impacting over 25 million lives. Anu's research was funded by the National Science Foundation. His work has been featured in Fast Company, Newsweek, TEDx, and the Oprah Conversation. He obtained his JD from NYU Law and a Master's in Philosophy in Developmental Studies from Cambridge University and a BA in International Relations and Islamic Studies from NYU. Thank you, Anu Gupta, for joining us today. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled for this conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. So tell us a little bit about being more with Anu. Tell us a little bit about your company and what you are striving to do with your work. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what I do right now is really started with a dream that I probably had as a young kid, which was to really be in a world where I can feel a sense of belonging anywhere, right? So I can belong everywhere. I feel like I was raised in a very, you know, very like aspirational environment where I thought, you know, the world was my oyster. And a lot of children have that philosophy. But as I grew older, particularly as an immigrant in the US and learned more about the realities of our world, I saw that you know, there are so many challenges that workplaces in particular face or communities face around racial inequalities, racial biases, gender biases. And for me, when I look at these challenges, whether it's within the workplace or police violence or within clinics, within classrooms, it all came down to this one thing known as bias. So the work we do is really preventative, right? It's really about training people in rewiring our brains so we can really change habits and really help decision makers make better decisions so we no longer have uh, challenges around discrimination and bias within the workplace and also in our communities. Um, And of course, I'll tell you more about how I got into this, you know, in a very like circuitous way because I never really meant to be a DEI practitioner or Mm. this was like, I mean, my parents are both doctors. So what they really wanted me to do was (laughs) <laughs> become doctors. And mm. actually, that's what the path I was on um, in college. But I, I've, I've always had this like love for cultures and love for languages. So, I, you know, in college, I 
you know, dropped pre-med and became an Islamic studies major mm-hmm. because I was just really curious about this culture. It was like the heyday of 9-11. Oftentimes, because of the way I look, I was you know, perceived to be Muslim. I experienced Islamophobia, even though I'm not Muslim, which is so strange, right? Mm-hmm. So I was always curious, like, but what is this about? And the more I learned, the more fascinated I became that at the end of the day, we're all the same organism. You know, we're all interconnected. We're part of the same species. So what is causing the divide? What is causing the polarization? Why the hatred? And then what can I do with my time, my efforts, the gifts that I have in order to be a force for good, be a force for building bridges? And this work, as you know, is ever more important now. So yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's wonderful. And so like in terms of just kind of talking about Islamophobia, and you brought it up in terms of what you were perceived, mm-hmm. I guess, to be a Muslim. Obviously, following 9-11, many people, uh, especially uh, those that were brown or had beards that may look like they are from the Middle East, mm-hmm. uh, would, or if somebody was wearing a hijab or whatever religious head covering, that they would uh, face a lot of animosity and hate. Yeah. Where do you think, I mean, outside of obviously the the mainstream media and the narratives that are being placed, where do you think that people really start to formulate these thoughts about seeing people in, in such a negative way? Yeah, it's such a great question. And, you know, I just, even in my mind, I have that first experience of experiencing bias in this way, like implanted in my mind, even though I've done so much healing and work around this and therapy and God knows what else. Mm -hmm. But it was actually in the 12th grade. It was probably a few weeks after 9-11 had happened. And I was just walking, went to school in New York City, Brooklyn, New York, very Mm -hmm. diverse. And just going to class and hearing from behind, someone called out to me, hey, Osama, go back to your country. Mm. And at first, I was a little shocked because I was like, wait, that can't be me, right? right? I'm not Muslim. I'm not from Yemen. And, you know, because I had this nuanced ex- experience. Mm-hmm. But then I looked around, I was like, oh, wow, this is directed at me. And that's when I realized, oh, this is really not about facts. This is not about, you know, humanism. It's really about othering. Yeah. And as you pointed out, the media has a huge role in shaping the way people And we as human beings perceive and see one another. So for me, I'll give you an example. So I grew up again in the U.S., but one of the only ways many Americans perceived Indians and people uh, from South Asia was Indiana Jones, Temple of the Doom. Mm. Um, So my family is vegetarian for their cultural and religious reasons. And of course, we grow up revering life. But a lot of people that I interacted with in my early childhood here thought that we ate monkey brains Mm. because there's a scene in the scene from, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh wow, this is so interesting. This is the power of the media. Yeah. And the challenge is that those stereotypes, that misinformation isn't being corrected by our education system, by our parents, by our, you know, places of worship. So as a result, the human beings that are, receiving this information are really, that's, that's the data set they have to see someone who looks like me right. must have that. So that's where it kind of begins. But I think for me, the amazing thing is, so I'll go into how I got started in this work in a second, but 
we as human beings have a plastic brain. There's this incredible thing known as neuroplasticity, which is our ability as human beings to rewire our brain. So just as these stereotypes, you know, we've learned these stereotypes and it's kind of become conditioned in our brains, we can unlearn them. And it's not, I mean, of course, it's a practice that requires ongoing engagement just as we brush our teeth or go to sleep every night. But it doesn't have to be like years and years of arduous work. Actually, it takes three to eight weeks to build a new habit. So for me, that's where the hope comes from, particularly from neuroscience and contemplative science. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a lot of different great points about how that scene from Indiana Jones and and to some extent we see how our our movies and our different character depictions and how they showcase certain people from certain parts wow. of the world in these stereotypical ways and how that becomes you know the mainstream thought process when you see someone from that region that that's the only way that people will see you like it's the only thing that they see of you and so yeah. and nowadays you know a lot more conversations are taking place as as you as you may be aware and know how how do we kind of get to a point where we're able to provide more accountability for people where these conversations are not occurring in a way that people feel comfortable to ask the questions, to engage and break these biases. Like, and I think I use words that are from your course. So tell us yeah. about breaking biases. Yeah. So, so let me give you a little bit of a backstory. So the way I came to this work. So basically before going to law school, I was basically working in international development and international human rights, working mostly in Southeast Asia, like you know, countries like Myanmar, uh, South Korea, Malaysia, on issues of gender equity and education. And that's what took me to do my graduate work at Cambridge. So I was kind of thinking about big systems and wanted to become an international human rights lawyer. But it was in law school that while volunteering for a few student groups, like Prisoner's Rights Education Project, there was a suspension representation clinic where we were representing kids that were being suspended from school in a court-like setting. And of course, Every one of my clients at the time that I was advocating for were Black children. In the courtrooms, when I would go and, you know, basically observe hearings, whether they were sentencing hearings or probation hearings, the defendant boxes were pretty much exclusively Black people. And if not, if they weren't Black, they were definitely poor or closer to being Black mm-hmm. as, you know, Black Latinos or Black, you know, darker-skinned Asians or people that are kind of similar to them in their backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So for me, I was like, at one point, I was like, the racial disparity was so stark. I was like, am I crazy or am I just seeing this over and over again? And the other thing that was happening while I was observing it, this became really clear in the prison that I went to. And if you're an American listening to this and you've never been to an American prison, that's an experience that every American needs to have. Because going to a prison, for me, as a visitor, I felt like I was wearing something called freedom and liberty that was taken off my body. It was probably the most grueling and dehumanizing experience I've ever had in my life. And I remember going to my friend, Betty, who was, this was one L year, crying for two hours because I was like, I'm here in this prestigious law school. We're talking about these lofty ideas. How can this be? 
how do we cage people as animals? Like I was, because I believe in the idea of America, and yet I couldn't believe the amount of cruelty, the amount of cruelty that's built into our system. Mm-hmm. And of course, who are the objects of that cruelty? Mostly people of color, especially if they're black or indigenous. So I think for me, that's where the journey began. I asked myself, hey, like, here I am doing all this human rights violation advocacy work in Myanmar, in India, in you know, Malaysia. We need this work here. So I could just do this work here. And that's kind of what started my journey. And the second I started on this journey, and I, big nerd, went to read lots of stuff from lots of different people, I came across this idea of systemic racism, structural racism, and it's finally gaining traction now 12, 13 years later due to the murder of George Floyd a few years ago. And for me, I understood it. You know, basically what systemic racism means, for those of you who are still confused by this concept, is that there are embedded power disadvantages within our organizations and systems between white people and people of color, which continue to perpetuate inequality and injustice towards people that are marginalized or who were historically excluded, i.e. people of color. Great. I get it theoretically. You know, we look at the media, we look at, you know, our profession of law, we look at medicine, we look at our college professors. Of course, most people in leadership are white. There are embedded disparities. Mm -hmm. The question for me was like, well, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? I am someone who wants to create solutions to it. So how do we create solutions? And that's where I was like, I don't know, people were just like, they were dumbfounded, you know, scholars, academics, anywhere I would go to, they were like, some people would be as radical as we have to burn down the system. Mm. And, you know, that approach can be very appealing to people because they're like, oh my gosh, there's been slavery, there's been genocide, there's all these Japanese internments, so many awful things that we have yet to acknowledge and reconcile. But as someone who's worked internationally, right, burning down the system doesn't work. Like what happened in Cambodia is really real. The death fields of Cambodia, where they basically killed every doctor, every scientist, every writer, and the impact of that still occurs to this day. That's not what we need. We don't need more bloodshed. What we need is more healing and reconciliation. So that was kind of the hint. So after law school, I undertook a study to really be able to define and describe systemic racism without using the word racism. Because, you know, when we use the word racism, we often use, you know, systemic racism, use the word racism to define it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, can I describe this without this thing? Because there's no one definition of racism across the board. And then, you know, after doing the research, we identified four components. Lack of resources. So lack of resource, something as simple as safe green parks, you know, public transportation, pretty much absent in communities of color. Then presence of trauma. So these are not just like police presence that's disproportionate, but things like toxic waste sites, you know, landfills placed in communities of color, you know, or Native American reservations. Then we have institutional policies, you know, these policies that are racially neutral, but enforced in a very discriminatory manner. So like no one says that you have to stop and frisk black people, but that's what happens. (laughs) Right. Right. And then the fourth component was bias, unconscious bias and conscious bias. So that was the study. That was the research. And for a couple of years after law school, I was like, oh, my gosh, we've kind of like discovered the holy grail. We can talk about this in a way that's intelligent, that kind of points to the research. But 
as I was working on this and was engaged in a lot of uh, field work, so actually engaged with communities that are impacted by this, you know, whether they're indigenous communities or black communities in the South, I mean, across the country, what I kept on hearing was, this is great. This is, again, another academic people you'll publish and maybe acquire a lot of fame for yourself and write a bunch of books. We need solutions. And that's where I was like, oh, yeah, I don't need to write another book on this. We need mm-hmm. solutions. I can explain this to you. You understand it. You get it. And that's where I was like, well, if this is what systemic racism is with these four components, where can we start? So when you think of lack of resources, presence of trauma and policies, those are results of a lot of people making decisions together, whether they're in organizations, governments, businesses, nonprofits, philanthropy. But bias is something each one of us has control and power over because it resides within individuals. And it's when these biases are shared with people we, we create those policies that impact many people. So I was like, oh, this is where I got to start. We got to start with breaking bias. Right. And incidentally, at that time, 30 years of research had shown that we can measure bias and there are interventions to break bias, five tools that I call PRISM. So I was like, okay, let's begin training the people in these tools so we can actually break bias to drive behavior change mm-hmm. and then to really create this opening for creating more diverse, equitable, inclusive workplaces and communities. And it doesn't have to be something that's like, oh my gosh, we have to wait for another 100, 200 years before you know, things shift. It's like, no, give me eight weeks of your time. But you have to give me the time. You have to do the work, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's one other aspect that I actually came across, how I actually came across you, was I really liked, I think it was on Twitter, where you had posted something about diversity, equity, inclusion, and with an emphasis on belonging. Mm. And so when I saw that, I really felt like belonging is such a powerful feeling. And for somebody to be in an environment, to have that sense of belonging is so important for them to feel concluded, to feel like that there's a fair environment, that they have equal opportunity. Mm. So how did you, I guess in some sense, how do we cater to some extent through your processes and and breaking bias, cater to that feeling of belonging, that belief that they belong? Yeah. Well, I want to ask you something actually before I respond is, what does belonging feel like for you? Belonging feels like being able to be in a safe environment, an environment where I can be vulnerable, I can be myself, and I can be true to myself to the extent that no matter how others see me, perceive me, that I'm accepted and that mm. it's somewhat like belonging is home. It's, mm. it's that feeling of being in a place where you can explore your own evolution and grow. So I guess that's kind of what I would feel belonging means to me. I just think it's such a beautiful, beautiful definition. I really like that because I wanted to ask that because everyone who's listening, maybe not using the same words, they would do the they would express belonging in a similar way, that feeling of home. Yeah. A feeling where I'm safe, where I'm not being judged. And for me, that's what it is. Belonging, the way I define it is being able to express and being celebrated for one's identities. 
without posing any threat or danger to oneself. Right? Celebrated is yeah. huge. Celebrated, Celebrated. Right? yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, imagine being a Muslim trans woman. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, not just being accepted for their expression, but being celebrated. Hey, yeah. you are a representation of human creativity and human genius, just as everyone else is. Right? Yeah. So, and that's where belonging really comes in. And for me, belonging is the aspiration. That's what we're trying to move towards. But if before we can get to belonging, we have to get to DEI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> and this is where your work comes in, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, most of my work is more or less more on accountability. Yeah. And I think in many ways, what we talk about the concept of breaking bias, and I guess you were you were kind of going into your the prism and the five things that you recognize. You want to tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that in terms of how yeah. you identify uh, biases within a workplace or an environment in general? Yeah, for sure. So, like, it really depends on the workplace we're in, but mm-hmm. there's just so much documented research that shows that unconscious bias, so implicit bias, is kind of the cause of discrimination and inequality in our society beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's a very high standard, you know, and as lawyers, we understand that. And what that really means is if you think about in the healthcare setting, patients with darker skin are professionally given lower doses of pain medication. And we have research that has shown that, you know, medical practitioners, doctors and nurses have an unconscious belief that darker skin can withstand more pain. So how these unconscious associations are influencing that decision. So when we think about health equity or health disparities, those micro decisions that are not intentionally malevolent, right? They're not, but because of how our brains have been trained and how we're responding to this external stimuli, we're making day-to-day decisions that have a huge impact, not just socially when it comes to equity, but financially. Mm-hmm. You know, the Kellogg Foundation did a study in 20. 13 and then revised in 2018 that showed that our economy would save or earn two additional trillion dollars annually without racial bias. Two trillion dollars. And for me, it's like, oh my gosh, what can we do with that much more? That's many more resources, yeah. right? So much more. So, but then back to your question of, well, how does it come up in the workplace? Well, a lot of it, it comes back in the way we communicate with one another. Huge, right? There's a buzzword known as microaggressions. But for me, microaggressions is just basically kind of verbal or nonverbal speech or action that's cruel. These are those paper cuts that accumulate over time. And if we're working in a workplace setting, we're working together, we want to be collaborative. We want to be creative so we can innovate in order to meet the organization's mission, whether it's financial, social, and other things. But it's these things that interrupt that process. But beyond that comes up as harassment and then also discrimination. Like I have so many people that I've interacted with who have been working very diligently and they're from some protected class, yet they haven't been given a promotion. They haven't been given a raise where most of their peers from the dominant group, whether they're men or straight or, you know, oftentimes white, they have been. So it's like how we measure competence, you know, from the perspective of an employer, and it comes up over and over again. So that is, I mean, and these are, for me, 
the challenge with our times right now is how do we prevent this from happening? Because what's happening is that a lot of companies are actually building a budget line <laughs> for discrimination. Right. But I'm like, well, you can spend a fraction of those funds training people, training your people in breaking bias and actually building and cultivating a more compassionate workplace, which is good for you because it enhances performance, productivity, creativity, innovation, and people feel like they have a sense of belonging. So the process of breaking bias really begins with mindfulness. And let me, let me, I'm going to say a bunch of words and I'm going to invite you and then the listeners to just notice whatever arises in your mind when you first hear that word. Scientist, CEO, yoga teacher. So since you're the person here, what did you notice <laughs> when you heard the word scientist or CEO or yoga teacher? And, and there's no shame. It's really about yeah. noticing what arose, right? In terms of like... Their racial identity, their ethnic identity, their gender identity, their height, weight, age, whatever. Or if there wasn't a person, it was something else, some other concept. I guess, I guess the first thing, when I mean, the one that really stands out to me is CEO, right? That's uh -huh. the one that I usually am like wondering a little bit about what type of personality they have and, and what kind of beliefs they have in terms of building up someone uh, in their environments and giving the opportunity to to kind of not only fulfill the mission and vision of the company but to to make sure that people grow with yeah. them you know scientist and and yoga teacher one for me felt like more spiritual the yoga uh, spiritual yeah. mindfulness i really don't necessarily i guess in my mind it did not come whether or not they were male female or any gender or 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 what you know what what they look like in my mind i just kind of think about more of the attributes of what they're wow. in essence doing and yeah. For a scientist, I, I see them more from a from an evidence-based theoretical approach and more mm. about, you know, kind of proving things uh, based right. upon what kind of understanding their their surroundings and trying to explain it. Yeah. So from that perspective, what were you, what what do you, what you think when you say these uh, three three individuals? Yeah. Well, I think for a lot of people and not for everyone, the first two scientists and CEO is a older white man, right? Mm. That archetype in our brains, when they imagine that, they think of Einstein, right? Or they think of Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, right? That's just like kind okay. of the prototype that's planted right. in our minds. And for a yoga teacher, it's probably a white woman, you know? And part of the goal for us is to become mindful of these associations. It's not to deny them. That's just how the mind has been conditioned. There's no shame in the game. And then basically we move up the ladder. So the prism tools, you know, I'll start backwards with M is really about becoming mindful of how and recognizing the stereotypes in our minds, how they arise through practice. And then we move to stereotype replacement, which is the S, which is really about now replacing those stereotypes that we have with counter positive examples. This actually works in the negative sense in particular so like a lot of people, when we think of homeless people in the U.S., think of African-Americans, even though, you know, there are more white homeless people than people of color, right? So being able to counter those stereotypes, and there's nothing wrong with being homeless or houseless, um, but it's really about kind of zooming out a little bit. And then we move into the space of individuation, which is about cultivating curiosity. 
So when I'm with Mahir, I'm with Mahir really wanting to get to know him for who he is versus my ideas about him based on his ethnic background, his professional background, you name it. Right. And then we move into hard practices of pro-social behaviors and perspective taking. That's the R and the P. And that's what a lot of you know, folks, particularly at Stanford Medical School, have been studying for decades, how practices of cultivation, of compassion, of joy, of altruism can actually change behavior. And these are the types of things that a lot of tech companies have also been innovating around at LinkedIn and other places, the cultivation of compassion, which also supports reduction of anxiety, reduction of stress and depression. So all these well-being things actually apply in the bias context, because when you perceive discrimination or actually experience discrimination or bias, it affects your well-being immediately. Right. So what we do is really training people to heal from that and then eventually be able to actually create company cultures where when such challenges arise, they can be addressed as opposed to, again, shame, blame, guilt and leading to these massive PR debacles, litigation uh, challenges and whatnot. Yeah. And so I guess from the perspective of you know, obviously, as employment uh, discrimination lawyers, one of the focuses, and I guess what we try to do is really, like I said in the beginning, seek accountability, and accountability for not only for the individual that has gone through these challenges of experiencing, the, you know, the discrimination that they've gone through, but also the accountability to kind of help change things mm-hmm. by by catering to asking the questions getting those questions answered as to why what ha- what happened who did what mm-hmm. and and a lot of times i guess maybe perhaps a lot of like I, I think you also mentioned a lot of your work is preventative our work in many ways is is after the fact reactive uh, right, re- yeah. reactive and but it's really uh, important right it's really important to give people a sense of agency and power what you're doing yeah it's empowering. You know, I yeah. think it's really empowering for people to know, and I think it's healing to Absolutely. know that they've been, that there's been an account, there's been an accounting of what has occurred uh, to give them a sense of this feeling that, okay, I got an opportunity to have my experience yeah. understood and whoever made me feel this way to be questioned about their behavior, their thoughts, yeah. and whether or not there's uh, any kind of monetary aspect to it, I think just to go through that process, I think is, is, is certainly empowering and healing all at the same time. I mean, you may not see yourself this this way, but I see employment lawyers like yourself in particular who are doing anti-discrimination work, really carrying on the legacy of civil rights, because it was the core that enabled, you know, black people, immigrants, Japanese Americans in some way to have some sort of reparations and restitution for the daily indignities and the oppression they experience, yeah. right? So women and other protected classes, right, um, since the 70s. So I think that is so true, but I feel that our systems, you know, are, you know, we're so interdependent and we have evolved significantly since the 60s. So we need now to really transform our cultures altogether and really purify it of all this toxicity. Mm-hmm. And I feel that employment lawyers will always be in business forever, as long as there are people, right? 
But I think we could do away with a lot of the frivolous litigation, which is such a waste of energy, time, talent, gifts of so many people. Yeah. Right? And that's where I see the opportunity for us. But, you know, this actually brings up a curiosity for me. You know, when you're trying to hold people accountable who have caused harm, particularly on discrimination or harassment, why do you think that they're resistant to actually being held accountable? Well, because you have, in many ways, you have different competing interests that are involved. Mm. And specifically... What are they afraid of? Like, what's going to happen? Well, they're afraid. I think most companies, when we when we actually seek accountability for someone who has experienced some form of unfair treatment within a workplace, the accountability falls on the employer. And the employer is looking to safeguard its most prized objective, the money. And when when you are fixated on making sure that the bottom line is protected, mm. then the the process of seeking accountability and you know raising these concerns becomes more of a defensive mechanism on behalf of the corporation rather than an openness to have a dialogue about understanding okay this is where the issue lies okay let's look into it let's investigate it the investigations a lot of times that they engage in are ways to figure out a way to gaslight the employee so they can create a narrative to protect the company and the reputation and the brand. So that's what we're up against. We're up against that type of uh, process. And I think it's this is why it's so important that you know people such as yourself and others that are involved in DI efforts are kind of catering to and nur- nurturing environments that are open to really starting to implement these DEI efforts, right? We just had a podcast that was released recently with um, Professor Joan Williams, who uh, talks about implicit bias uh, from a very research-oriented way, and she's written many books about it. And, you know, she talks about how it needs to be viewed as another system within a business that yeah. $8 billion is being spent on DEI efforts, but there's really little to show for it. Exactly. And how... You know, if we are going to make changes, businesses need to view this as a part of their system and review it as a way to make the systems work better. So I think that's the challenge I think that we as employment lawyers see and right. but recognize that, okay, that there's a lot of people that are on the ground that are working to prevent and change cultures. Within. So, No, I think it's so interesting what you shared and it's valuable for me to see how you know, you working on the plaintiff side, really seeing that this is what's coming up for these companies. They think that they can protect their brand and their reputation and even their bottom line by not holding the bad actors accountable. And it has the opposite effect. Tesla most recently, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of dollars they had to settle with. Google, they had a full-on strike. You know, I don't know how many billions of dollars they lost, you know, but it's just... So I think that part of it is like what I sense, and I don't, I don't have, you know, having worked with, you know, over 300 companies, I feel like the resistance really comes from fear amongst the decision makers that somehow they're wrong. I don't know what you think about it, but I'll give you an example. So I don't know if you remember that Aziz and Sari story from a few years ago 
when he was accused of sexual harassment, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, of date rape, and mm -hmm. yeah, and I read all the details, and he was incredibly defensive and all sorts of things, and basically hid out for a few years. And of course, the the story was, you know, not full case of you know sexual harassment because there was various other factors. Like I don't know, I wasn't there. I wasn't the woman who was impacted by this, but I believe her story. But I was like, well, why couldn't this guy just be like, I'm sorry this happened to you. I am sorry that I got drunk and misbehaved and I want to make it up to you. I want to repair the harm and let's do it in a way that can model for other men that this, this type of thing never happens again. And I'm like, if he did that, wouldn't he save a lot more money? Wouldn't he build more reputational capital? Wouldn't he build his brand um, and on the same time become an advocate? So for me, it's like, well, why didn't he do that? You know, and why did the people that are advising him not encouraging him to do that? Because that's what you need. And here's, you know, here's a man of color, you know, a one of the rare Muslim public celebrities in our country that's very well known and respected. And I'm like, wow, like, this is important. And then, of course, this has happened. Basically, there have been so many Me Too scandals, including the governor, the former governor of our state. I'm like, well, why is it that these people in leadership think that they're going to save more money by not listening to people or protect their brand when it's having the opposite effect? Well, sexual harassment and yeah. those that engage in it is a little different than, let's say, for instance, these forms of discrimination that I think people experience on the basis of their race. Mm -hmm. There is some, obviously, overlap to some extent at the when you boil it all down. But in essence, it's really power. Yeah. It's this control. It's this, it's this desire that is to be able to do whatever you want without having any repercussions for doing it. Mm -hmm. And that type of a thought process is nurtured by the environments exactly. that are that are being somewhat kind of nurtured to be that way. Um, and people are a byproduct and how they behave is a byproduct of that environment in many ways. Yeah. So I think fear certainly, I think, plays a role. I mean, certainly a fear of, uh, of being held accountable, fear yeah. of of losing face, fear of, you know, like brand reputation, uh, all these yeah. things I think certainly play into it. But I think a lot of, a lot of companies are obviously, once again, they're, they're being represented by lawyers and their objectives are to defend the company and to defend and, and try to limit their liability. That's what a lawyer would do on the employer side, right? They would want to limit the liability and how better to do that than to, make sure that they create and cater to a defense that can demonstrate how yeah. whatever the individual is complaining about is simply not substantiated, right. right? The key word being substantiated. And every time, you know, a lot of times when I speak with my clients, a lot of times when we see these investigations come out and when we look at things, it's so important for people to know that what your employer says or whoever says that something didn't happen or that it didn't occur in their eyes based upon their investigation doesn't mean it's true, right? We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't accept yeah. just because the employer is saying it, right? They have an interest in defending themselves. Right. So, uh, But a lot of people take it really personally because they feel like, okay, there's a hope. There's a hope 
that exists within people that when they're seeking accountability from the people that have put them through something, that maybe they'll apologize. Maybe they'll right. come to the table and find a way to 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 make us feel vindicated for what we went through yeah. and make it right. And unfortunately, I mean, it, there are some instances where it happens. And it usually happens where the individuals that are involved are like repeat offenders. And then the company's like, oh my God, like this is something that we got to look into because this is something that we can't even defend at this point. Sure. So it's definitely a challenge. And I, I really think, like I said, I think, uh, you know, it all comes down to what kind of an environment is being nurtured and what management is looking to try to cultivate within that environment right. in terms of catering to that that effort of accountability and also openness and honesty uh, that I think in many ways is, is something that's somewhat not really nurtured, not just in companies, but I think generally in this country anymore. Our country, yeah. yeah. That's kind of the shift that's taking place, I see, with you know, what's happened in the last couple of, you know, last decade in particular, is that people are demanding more accountability within organizations and also company cultures that are not as hierarchical, where people can have a sense of agency and power and not be abused because that was the norm prior to the civil rights era, right? You had to be a one kind of person to have all the power. And, you know, I think for me, the the crux of power that you shared within the sexual harassment case, I think it also transfers over in the racial bias instances, particularly in the experiences I've had in this field, because the denial, well, I didn't mean that. I didn't say that. I didn't write that. This is being misunderstood. I'm like, well, okay, you didn't, but this is how the other person felt. Felt, So why are you not willing to acknowledge how they felt, you know? And that's where I'm like, oh, this is about power. But more importantly, this is about shame. This is about the incredible amounts of shame that people are carrying around these issues of identity. And for me, this is why, like, you know, one of my mentors around this work has been Brian Stevenson, who I learned from in NYU Law School. And this is where we have to really practice more compassion, what he calls mercy. And the crux of these challenges around discrimination is really a spiritual crisis. It's like an existential crisis that people have to look at themselves every day and be like, hey, am I causing harm? And if I've caused harm, can I repair the harm? And that unwillingness to do that in positions of power, and unfortunately with the leadership we've seen in our politics and business over the last couple of years, is creating a, you know, it's kind of giving other people permission to act in a way that's inhospitable to others, which is why I feel it's so important for folks like you and I and everyone who's listening to go against the stream and lead by example. Because it's almost like there are two forces that are fighting right now. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Well, listen, uh, Anu, it's been, <laughs> it's been amazing. Uh, I loved our conversation. We've uh, touched upon a lot of different topics. And uh, I think ultimately we've definitely uh, touched upon them in a the manner where I hope the listeners find value and, mm-hmm. and recognize the, the opportunity that exists about you know catering to a better a better world. I think that at the yeah. end of all of this is really focused on making a better world for everyone that's in it. Um, for seven so, generations to come. Yes. Well, Anu, thank you so much for, for taking out the time today. Yes. I deeply appreciate it. Uh, for everybody that's listening, definitely check out 
Anu's website, bemorewithanu.com, and learn more about his company and what he does. I know that you can also uh, check out within the information within the podcast more on his social and definitely like and follow him. Uh, He is inspirational and he's doing phenomenal work. And everyone that's doing something that's good for society should always be supported. So thank you, Anu, for all of your hard work. Thank you so much for having me, my hero. Pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on the Workplace Justice Podcast. Love this episode? Leave us a review and tell us what you think about our show. If you haven't subscribed yet, head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss a new episode. Need help? Talk to an employment lawyer today. Visit our website at nisarlaw.com or call 212-600-9534 for your free case evaluation. See you in the next episode.